right, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 45 as we continue on in our, in our worship service together. We have this fascination in our society with weddings. We, and maybe it's a little understatement to use the word fascination, but we do have a fascination with weddings. In 2020, the national American average cost of a wedding was $19,000. Which, remember what 2020 was, or is, a drop from the 2019 average, which was 28. And then I thought, well, that's American, what about Canadian? So moneysense.ca says that the average cost of a wedding can is between $22,000 and $30,000. We have an amazing fatuation with weddings, some of, our, 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 some of the most viewed events in the entire history of television are weddings. Some of you were around to see Prince Charles and Princess Diana be married, which was at the time, I think, uh, the most viewed event on television, only to be outweighed by her, their two sons who recently got married. We have an infatuation with, with weddings, but not only that, we have an infatuation with royal weddings. We love the glitz and the glamour that come with weddings and those royal ones. I remember uh, you're supposed to ask your daughter to, for permissions and stuff like this, but I remember when, uh, uh, when, when King, well, Princess, Prince William was getting married to Kate and my daughter had, uh, they were watching it on TV. We were watching it on TV and she put on like her blanket and she was talking about getting married right? Uh, and we all have these fatuations. We all love these weddings and royal weddings, and they're great. And as we look at Psalm 45, Psalm 45 is a wedding song that would be recited at royal weddings. As far as we can tell, it was written for the purpose of Solomon as he was getting married to Pharaoh's daughter, the Egyptian king. So the songwriter comes in the first verses here, and he's excited. His heart is overflowing with, the, the, with this prospect of what is going to happen, and he begins to praise uh, the king and also take a look at the bride herself. But here's my question as I was reading this over, as I was reading over Psalm 45. If this was a psalm that was written for the king, how did it look in a post-exilic world? When there was no one on the throne? Was it sung the same way? There were no royal, thro- royal weddings anymore. How did it look? What did it look like? How did they sing this very royal wedding song? Because it's in the word of God and they would continue to sing it. This is a song book after all. All of the songs are songs. So Psalm 45 is a great example of what C.S. Lewis says is ha- would call a second meaning in the Psalms. Yes, this Psalm is primarily about a wedding, but there's something else that is pointing us to. This is not just a wedding about two mortal people. This is a song about the wedding of weddings. This is a song that points to something greater than any wedding that we have ever, ever seen. So Psalm 45 says this, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. 
Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of the truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with the myrrh and aloes and cassia from Ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek you your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all the generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In the verse 1, as I was saying, we see this introduction of the songwriter and how excited they are he is to write this song and how he's overflowing. And as we get into verses 2 to 9, he begins to see the praises for the king. The praises for the king. We are looking at a king who is chief among 10,000. He is a king who no other man has ever spoke like. His words are like grace. He is meek and lowly. But not just that, but he also rides forward conquering and to conquer. And that is, he is also the faithful and true one. The king is blessed by God because of God's promises given to David. He is, as this verse says, handsome in verse 7, or verse 2. And that word handsome really literally means excellent, and he is excellent because of the presence of God with him. He is the king of God's people, and God is with him. He sits on God's throne as God's representative to his people. It is God's divine blessing that, shown, that is shown as he, as he talks his, in his valor, as he, as he cons, is concerned with establishing God's kingdom on earth and the continuity of that dynasty. As I was reading these verses, a, a hymn came up when I was looking at verse 4, and the hymn is called, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty, an old one from the 1800s. In the first stanza, it says, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. Hark, all the tribes, Hosanna, cry, our Savior, meek, pursue your road with psalms and scattered garments strode. This is just an amazing praise for the king. 
as the psalmist reflects upon this marriage and looks around and pictures this, this procession and what is about to happen. Uh, you can imagine almost as, as the king and, and the queen are maybe standing beside each other and the songwriter is standing there and performing this amazing psalm. He's praising, he's looking into the eyes of the king and he's saying these praises to him. But then verse 6 comes along. And in verse 6, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. This is a great example of how the Old Testament language is kind of bursting from its banks. It demands more than just a human fulfillment. In fact, no human could ever possibly fulfill this. Think about all those medieval movies that you've watched growing up. Long live the king. May the king live forever. Those were the same sort of things that would happen even in ancient Israel. May the king live forever. But here's the problem with that. No king lives forever. Right? So you have the people praising the king and saying all these things, but he doesn't. But the songwriter comes here and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is not a new version of this psalm, but it points to someone who will fulfill this. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, uses this passage to actually lay proof of the supremacy of Christ in all things, specifically angels. Jesus' throne is eternal. All those who come to him in faith will never face a day. I mean, never will face a day in all the long days that have come and will come when our Savior is not reigning for our salvation. His throne is eternal. And a pastor by the name of Calvin writes it this way as he reflects upon the encouragement of, of the eternal throne of Christ. He says this, As he is head of the church, the author and protector of our welfare, he reigns not merely for a time, but possesses an endless sovereignty. Endless sovereignty. Always. From this, we derive our greatest confidence both in life and death. See, the writer of Hebrews speaks similarly of this when, when we look at uh, Hebrews 7.25. And in Hebrews 7.25, it comes and it gives how the, the consequences of, of Jesus' reign, uh, reign sorry, and where it says this in verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the outermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, he is able to save to the outermost. And he always reigns. In verse 9 of this psalm, we see the climax of the setting as the queen is standing in her prepared place. Next, the, the, the next section that we will get into talks about the queen, but she is standing beside the queen, not as someone who is just uh, taking part in the ceremony as kind of like, I don't know, uh, a piece of furniture but she's active. 
She's standing beside the king and, and is part of the affairs of the estate. Her place will be at his side. And I dwell upon Ephesians 2, verse 6, which says, where the Apostle Paul says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In all the splendor of Solomon's court, and we know when we read through the Bible and give all the accounts of all the riches that Solomon have had, it was, mirac- it was beautiful. It, it, you know, when people built the new temple after the, Solomon's temple was destroyed, they weed because it didn't even compare in beauty to the first one. Compared to all of the beauty of Solomon's court, all the splendor of Solomon's court, even King David himself, his father, none reached to the level that we see here. There is only one who has, and his name is Jesus, who conquered death, who died on the cross for our sins. He is victorious. In Christ, we have a victorious captain. So to whom else will we turn for or to for the righteousness that we so desperately lack. But need if we are to stand before God's judgment. To what power and authority will we run? Who will we seek refuge in? Who will save us? Save that one whom God has enthroned forever, whose scepter is righteous, and who at the end of days will establish justice on the earth. Who will we run to except him? Where else can poor sinners like you and me find salvation except in the court of the eternal king who cleanses our robes in the blood of the cross to forgive us of our sins? Where else do we go? See, the queen is shown in these next few verses, a wedding emphasizes with this, this wedding emphasizes a special clarity, the parting and the new beginning, which is fundamental in all marriages. In a marriage, there is a new beginning, a new life begins. The old loyalties of the bride can't compete to the old ones as we begin to see the songwriter change his attention. He's been staring at the king and now he turns his gaze to the queen and he says, now it's your turn. Which, by the way, as I think about this, I would hate every moment of it, by the way. Being the center of attention is not my... I know, I'm preaching. But the royal bride begins to be addressed in verses 10 to 15. In verses 10 to 12, the songwriter is speaking to the bride. The bride is at the right hand of the king, dressed in the finest gold ever possible. This is a place that we think is in the West Arabia, where it was known for the fine gold. Perfect gold, purest of gold. And the songwriter encouraged her to forget your people and your father's house. She is now in a new position, no longer a daughter in her father's house. She will be a queen in her own house. I think of Genesis 12, verse 1, where God calls Abraham out of his father's land to establish himself in his own. And he makes that covenant with Abraham. I think of Genesis 2, 24, which calls the husband to leave his parents and to cleave to his wife. 
There is a new beginning that is encouraged of this, of this woman, of this bride. No longer are you the daughter of Pharaoh. Now you are the husband of the king of Israel. Your loyalties have begun to shift. They have shifted. And in verse 11, when we think about how she's bowing down to him as Lord, when we think about in ancient Israel, the king was God's anointed representative. And submission to him was a submission to God. The king delighted in, her, in the beauty of his wife. She respects him as she calls her Lord. And the outcome of this is that people all, all over the place, even in Tyre, will come to bring gifts. Tyre was this rich trading city. We, during Solomon's reign, precious gifts were brought to Jerusalem because he was internationally known coming from Tyre. Throughout the Bible, we see how the prophets envisioned a time of restoration which was shown by how the nations would bring gifts to show the special position God's people have on earth. So the songwriter comes and he's communicating the favor and the blessings of what will happen with her new identity. Comfort is what he's offering to her. Because it's scary, isn't it? Just imagine this. It's not like today where you could get married and still visit your parents. She was moving to another country. They didn't have the internet. Right? They couldn't just go to FaceTime and, and FaceTime their parents whenever they had a fight with their, with their spouse. They had none of that. When she was leaving, she was leaving. Never to go back. And you can hear, she must have been struggling with that. I don't know who would blame her. The songwriter points out that the blessing of her new identity that she has, no longer are you just a daughter, but you're a queen. And people will come and they will bring gifts to you, the richest of gifts. In her marriage, she isn't a loser. She's a gainer. She can give up what she can because she is to gain something better than what she had. And in verse 13 to 15, the focus shifts even more as the songwriter begins to still reflect upon the royal bride. The glory of the bride comes through. The, sh the scene begins to change. And we move from the throne room to the beautiful bride as she prepares herself for the wedding and enters the royal palace with her maids of honor. And she is adorned in a magnificent gown made of gold-embroidered fabric. She and her wedding party are carried into the palace as if on floats of joy and gladness. She's kind of like, I don't know, gliding through the air. And I think about my own wedding day. And I think about the joy it was on that day. I have this app on my phone where I can see previous memories. So every once in a while, my wedding photos pop up. And none of them are of me, um, because the photographer, why would they take pictures of me? Uh, but they, they're pictures of Stephanie, my bride. And as she's getting ready and, you know, getting makeup on and earrings and all these things, and, you're going, and, and you can see the joy within her eyes. Hopefully it was joy. 
but she's there and she's preparing for this wedding day. But sometimes we forget that the preparing of the wedding doesn't start on that day. It starts way before, usually. We can get married today if you want, but, you know, usually it takes time to prepare. There's people to invite. There's food to order. There's a gown that seems to take forever to get ready. There's all of these things that need to be prepared. There's marriage counseling, premarital, that you should take part in because marriage is tough as it is. You need some help. There's all this preparation that is happening. And as the bride here, after this preparation, is led to the king in her best clothes, he waits for her in full state. This isn't just a picture of a wedding. This is the same idea of what we see when the Apostle Paul comes in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 as he's presenting, as he says, I've worked and I'm working to present you as a bride to Christ. This helps us see this first wedding between Adam and Eve in which God brought the woman to the man and the last wedding when the church comes prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. She is a bride who is showing her inner honor and her integrity. I was talking to Steph about this, my wife Stephanie, Steph, uh, this past week about this passage and we were just talking about it and she just made the simple observation, isn't all marriage ultimately a picture of Christ in the church? And she's right. What does this mean for you and for me? The church is the bride of Christ. Which, on a side note, uh, God help you if you speak poorly about the bride. If you are a Christian, you have also been called into the church and you have been united with him through faith. In him who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and will one day return to claim, to bring whom he has claims into forever relationship for eternity with him. This is the great marriage feast because the church is this. Because Noah, we are part of the bride of Christ. We must put our former ways behind us. Don't miss that part there where the songwriter comes to the bride and he says, forget about your past. Look to what is happening now. So many of us live our Christian lives with one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. The boat's moving. You're going to turn into a TikTok video. You're going to make a fool of yourself. Forget your past. Live for Christ now. That's what the songwriter is encouraging the bride, and that's what we see here as the Church of Christ. To be a Christian is to leave behind the desire uh, for the praise and pleasures offered by this world. We no longer are fascinated by the glitter of this world, but are enamored by our Savior. We own Christ as Lord, and we bow to him. As Lord and Savior, we offer our lives in reverent obedience to his holy will. 
to be a part of the bride of Christ is to forsake the past, to forsake our old life and embrace the new. We have been taken from a kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. I do, and I do this myself, and, I, and every time I, just like how Dave was mentioning Paul's words, I don't know why I do this, why I play in the muck when there is so much better here. And I have so much more to wait for in anticipation. Another pastor said it this way, to renounce the world is not easy, right? I'm not going to say it. Oh, yeah, this is easy. Just flick the switch and you're good to go. That would be foolish of me. But it must be done by all who are, who are part of the, who are all connected to the great king. For a divided heart he cannot endure. We must come forth of the house of fallen nature, for it is built in the city of destruction. Not that natural ties are broken by grace, but ties of the sinful nature bond of graceful, graceless affinity. Our half-heartedness in pursuing this separation from sin explains so much of our own feebleness in today's world. So often we have one foot on that dock and one foot in the boat and the boat's moving, folks. I'm not like some martial artist guy who can do the splits. The question for you and for me is, what are you enamored by today? Your king? Your bridegroom? The blessings that he offers you? When you are united with him? Or are you still running after the glitter of this world because you think it's gold? Spurgeon, who said that quote before, he, he rightly concludes that paragraph. He says, Only when the whole church leads the separated life will the full splendor and power of Christianity shine forth upon the world. We're called to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. Part of that is living as though we have been saved by God's amazing grace. You want to shine brighter for Christ? Be Christ-like. Grow in holiness. Reflect upon all of what you get when you become his. I am not a loser when I come to Christ. I am the gainer. I have gained everything. I can count it all lost because of Christ's surpassing worth. I can count it all lost. And that's what the songwriter encourages the bride to do. Have you ever noticed that the people of our world are generally unhappy and miserable people? And which is dumbfounding to me because there's a mad pursuit for pleasure. Why then would a believer be drawn to the world? The joys of a committed Christ, uh, one who is committed to Christ are too many to even list. If you want a great exercise, get together with one of your brothers or sisters in the Lord and just talk about all the ways that Christ has blessed you. Because you will not run out. Look at the, prince, the princess bride in Psalm 45, not the movie. 
and her joyful procession going to her handsome groom. Chief among our blessings as a Christian. Chief among our blessings. And this is like the one that trumps all trumps, if you can do that. Is our blessing, is the blessing of fellowship with the living Christ, who is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is our good shepherd. He is the divine lover of our souls. And as the songwriter concludes in verses 16 to 7, what are the results of a real love story? What are they? Happily ever after, right? A true love story should result in a happily ever after life. But the movies always end. In verse 16, we see that the outcome of this wedding is that there will be children to replace the fathers who pass on. There will be a continuing growing of generations of those who God will work through. In verse 17, we see there will be a continuous praise for the king as, as the song is continued to sing. But in this world, the fairy tale falls short. But those who enter into the wedding of weddings, the eternal union between Christ, between God's royal son and his church, experience a blessing that will never fade. Never fade. I think this past year and a half, two years, have really challenged myself on this, and you as well, I think. Because we complain all the time. It's so hard. It's so rough. And I'm not, complaining is different than lament, okay? We can lament before God and we can beat his chest. Complaining and whining is what got Israel stuck in the desert for 40 years. Where God was still good and gracious and merciful. But when I reflect more and more upon what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for my sins, and he rose again and he sent it to heaven, and he will one day return to claim, to bring the bride he claims. He has already claimed his bride. That's what the resurrection is. That should change my perspective. It should change my perspective. Are you preparing yourself now for the future consummation of this psalm? Are you wearing the robe of righteousness that Jesus alone can give? And are we then preparing ourselves in the beauty of his grace, passionately seeking to be holy through his word and by prayer, so that praise may come to Christ through our lives? Are you forgetting your previous life and embracing a life in Jesus Christ? Do you want to? Let me tell you more about who my Savior is. Let me tell you how Jesus puts an end to the rat race of this life. Of constantly trying to fulfill a void that can never be filled because we were created to worship God. What do we do with all this? Quick recap. The psalm is about the wedding of weddings. This is a wedding that will bring an end to the Bible's history, establishing Christ's eternal joy in the embrace of his 
um, uh, his splendid bride, the church. This psalm was written for a royal wedding, but God had in mind something greater. We are now waiting in anticipation, are we not? For the eternal bliss that the song ends with. Salvation is not about getting out of is not just about getting out of hell and getting into heaven. It's about being with Jesus forever. I can't wait. I really can't. I know I'm young, and some of you are like, oh, he's young, he's got so much time to go. I can't wait. And every time I forget about that anticipation is when I begin to play in the muck again. This is why we gather together. It's why we sing these songs. It's why we open the word of God to remind ourselves that we get to wait in anticipation of something greater than this. This mess. I can't wait when finally my sin is no longer in the way of fellowship with Jesus. The mind-blowing thing is that forever I will be worshiping God. Because every day, if there's days, I will be learning something more about who he is. My God is eternal. He is forever. He is infinite. Which means forever I will be learning something new about who he is. That is heaven. That is being in fellowship with Christ. I will be with the divine lover of my soul forever. Only by the grace of God. And only by, for those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Not based upon your works. Not based upon how many times you've been to church. Not based upon how much you read your Bible. Purely the grace of God. The outcome of that grace is a life that is lived for in a way that is preparing for what we anticipate. You don't get off getting to do whatever you want because as someone who has a changed heart, all I want to do is to please my king. I wait in anticipation for what God has done. Our bridegroom is coming. Jesus is our bridegroom. And we should take the time to prepare ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit for that day. The second meaning of this psalm extends to it all, not just the two verses that are quoted in Hebrews 1. And it develops further the way by how the Old Testament portrays a human love and marriage may become the basis of an allegory for Christ and the church, the groom and the bride. Christ, the king, has been enthroned by God and rules in righteousness. The church, the bride, is called upon to leave home and worship the king. The blessings of that marriage outweigh the loss of what has been given up. I thought about this not too long ago because I know some people who have grown up in Muslim worlds and God has called them out of, out of that life and into a new life. When they leave that, they leave everything. Their families cut them off. There has to be something better for them that continues to get them to praise their God. I think some of our brothers and sisters who didn't grow up where we grew up understand that, have a keen awareness of that, and I struggle with it. 
the blessings of that marriage outweigh the losses. The eternal king claimed his bride and he will one day come back. If you are a Christian, you are betrothed for the wedding of weddings. Are you preparing yourself now for the future that this psalm points to? Because the main point is this. We wait, we await the return of the perfect bridegroom to bring his bride to be with him forever. Beautiful. Can't wait. Can you? We have to, but we can't wait. Whatever we have in Christ outweighs everything, outweighs everything that we've lost for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We just pray, Lord, it is hard. It is hard to think about renouncing the world before us, behind us, and embracing a new, a new life in you. But God, I just pray that by your Spirit, you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds, that we would grow in Christ-likeness and holiness as we prepare for the day when you will return and we will be with you as the bride of Christ forever for the great wedding feast that we read about. Lord, I long for those days. I pray for myself that because I long for that, that that would change and that would be reflected in my life. I pray that for all of us as a church, that we together would, would be joyful as we wait with anticipation of that great wedding feast and that we, would be, that we would work at preparing ourselves for that day. May you be glorified in us as we seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And amen.